Today's guest on the podcast is Nir Ayal. He's the author of the new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Okay, you guys, real talk now. If you read one book this year, this is the book to read. I promise you. It single-handedly changed my life in so many ways. So, so, so many ways. Actually, if you're going to read two books, read this one and read The Year of No Nonsense, (laughs) which is coming out in December, because they very much go hand in hand. I was so thrilled to read so many of the techniques and ideas they mesh very nicely with what was called what what, what happened with my year of no nonsense and kind of becoming indistractable in your life, your goals, your relationship, the way you live your life. So you're going to love this book if you haven't read it. Run, don't walk. But in this episode, we talk about the principles of being indistractable. And I really loved this conversation. Super energetic and vibrant and a lot of great takeaways just from the interview. But I hope you all enjoy this episode with Nir Ayal. He has some freebies for you at the end on his website, and we will post the links to that in the show notes. So here we go. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Nir Ayal. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We were talking offline. He has a new book out called Indistractable. And I had a friend who said, Meredith, you have to read this. And I did. And then I am recommending it to all my clients. And it's such an amazing book. So first of all, thank you for changing the face of my iPhone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for the high praise. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me, Meredith. Thank you. (laughs) When I reached out to interview for the podcast, I don't know if, um, I know I talked to your people, but I sent a screenshot of my new iPhone um, home screen to prove that I read your book (laughs) because I had removed all these apps and changed it. It was super clean. So let's talk a little bit about Indistractable and what this book is about. I know it's a big topic, but I love the title. So let's start there. What does Indistractable mean? Yeah, so becoming indistractable means you do what you say you're going to do. You are the person who strives to live with personal integrity. And I think that is a feeling that uh, all too few people actually experience. I certainly hadn't experienced that feeling that there's kind of a magic to living a day where you do everything it is that you said you were going to do. And I think a lot of people don't experience that feeling. And it's, it's really unfortunate, right? We all carry around a to-do list with a hundred things to do on our to-do list because that's what the productivity gurus tell us to do is have a big to-do list. Right. But then every day, you know, you have a hundred things on that to-do list and then you're, you have a great day. You're super productive. You do five of them and you still have 95 more to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, get, yeah. you get home every day, day after day. 
and you feel like you, it's never enough. Like you're just on a treadmill, you know, constantly running for more and more and more just to stay at the same place. And it's uh, it's nauseating. It's a really hard feeling. And I think a lot of what, what it comes down to is not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't realize how distracted we are throughout our days, how often we go off track that, you know, to, to have the kind of life you want to, to live the kind of uh, life you, that you dream of, you not only need to do the right things, you need to make sure you don't do the wrong things. And yes. I don't a lot of yes, I love that. You know. Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> In order to have the kind of life that you dream of, it's not only about doing what you need to do. It's also about making sure you don't do the things that you don't need to do. Right. And uh, I think that there's a lot of books out there telling you to do this, telling you to do that. But there aren't a lot of books out there that tell you what's in your way. Because, look, the, the fact is – we all pretty much know what to do, right? <laughs> Who right. doesn't know generally, you know, the big picture on how to get in shape? Who doesn't know basically the big picture about how to have better relationships with people? You know, you have to be fully present. Who doesn't know that to do better work, uh, we have to actually do the work, especially the <laughs> stuff that is hard and other people don't want to do. The question is, why don't we do the things that we know we ourselves want to do? So that's that's really the big question. Yes, the big question. You're, you're so right. I mean, I think my favorite line with every one of my clients is they come to me they're like, well, I know what to do, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm hiring yeah. you, you know? Yeah. So we're not, we're not doing the things that we want to do. We, we know we want to do because we want these certain outcomes. So talk a little bit about the difference between, I like your, your use of the term traction versus distraction. Absolutely, yeah. So the best way to understand distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. Most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, but I don't quite agree with that. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Mm -hmm. That in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter words, A-C-T-I-O-N, and that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, Anything can be a distraction. So how many times do you have you said it? Well, I don't want to talk for you. Let me. I'll, I'll talk, ahead, talk for me. I would every day sit down at my desk and say, "Okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to do that thing I've been procrastinating. I'm finally going to do that that hard thing I've been putting off." Right after I check email. Right. 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 And, and I justify it saying, oh, email feels like a worky thing to do. Email feels like, you know, it's okay. I got to do that anyway at some point, right? Well, if it's not what you plan to do with your time, it is just as much of a distraction. So, you know, the, this excuse that we all, uh, many of us get, get, uh, get sucked into, these tasks that are urgent, but that urgency comes at the expense of doing things that are important. Yes. And I think that is that is a really a, a dangerous cycle that when we only respond, when we're only about reacting and have no time for reflection, no time to do the things that we plan to do, that's that's a really bad spot to be. And I think many people are, are running around uh, just reacting to things, reacting to emails, reacting to meetings, reacting to a tap on the shoulder from their colleagues throughout the day. And they have no time to do things that they plan to do. And so all those things – are just as much of a pernicious distraction as you know the the, the ping or ding on your phone. Right. Uh, so so just as anything can be a distraction, anything can be traction as well. So this is not one of those books that tells you that technology is melting your brain and it's addicting you and it's high. I, I think that stuff is rubbish. And it, actually, if you look at the scientific literature, it is not true and it's not helpful. 
because I think people are, are deluding themselves thinking that the problem is the technology. Uh, we have always had distraction. Uh, Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia. So distraction has always been with us. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with going on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, of course, checking email. We, we, these tools are wonderful, and many of these tools we need for our livelihood. So when other authors say, well, just stop using it, right? Go on a digital detox, do right. a plan. Well, okay, that's nice if you don't have a social media account, but we need these tools for our livelihoods. So my book is, is very tech positive, and I want people to use the tools that benefit them as long as these tools are serving them and as long as they use them according to their values and are their schedule, there's nothing wrong with it, right? So, so that you can turn these things that would otherwise be distraction into traction by making time for them in your day. Yeah, and I like how you talk about motivation is actually a desire to escape discomfort. And so the way I look at that is I absolutely love doing public speaking, but I hate preparing for it. I will mm. put off my <laughs> public speaking preparation until day before, like, which is the worst thing ever because that is probably the most important thing I have going right now. But the discomfort is the prep for it. It makes me uncomfortable for whatever reason. And so for me, motivation is to like, oh, well, maybe I'll just go do this right now because I don't want to deal with the discomfort of what I really need to do, which is the most important thing. And and so just our basic urge to be comfortable is, is a big play in all of this. Yes. And it's, it's as if you're reading my mind because I also, I love doing public speaking. I hate practicing. I hate preparing, but that's the only way to give a great talk is that you right. have to do this stuff. So you really hit on the, the root cause of distraction. As much as people blame what we call the external trigger, the pings, the dings, the rings, this is what most books about technology and distraction tell you is the problem. It's all about the technology. Well, that's not true. Actually, uh, that the, the, the source of distraction is not Facebook. It's not your iPhone. It's not email. The source of distraction goes much deeper. It's not just about the external triggers. It's really about the internal triggers. So internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional responses that we seek to escape from. Uncertainty, fatigue, loneliness, boredom, whatever yes, it might yes, be. Yes, yes, all of those. The, the, all of those <laughs> things, that is why we reach for distraction. And fundamentally, if we don't understand that that is why we are reaching for distraction, by the way, and the distraction doesn't have to just come from our phones. It can be you know, staying at work too long to avoid what's going on at home. Mm -hmm. It can be uh, staying at home too long for ignoring what's happening at work. <laughs> it can be drinking too much. It could be watching too much TV, playing too, you know, what, you know I've, I've met people who are exercise uh Addicts who are spending way too much time, you know, doing things to avoid reality, and so that is the common source of distraction: is this desire to escape these uncomfortable sensations. If we don't understand that fact, we'll always become distracted by one thing or another. Yes, yes. So it was really funny when after I read your book, I took some of the advice, and um, we can go into it or not. But I, I turned off all my social media notifications, and um, I, I rearranged my home screen. I made it very clean. And the first night, um, I have a book coming out in, I guess, six weeks. So there's a lot, of, you know this, a lot of uncertainty around the lead up to the pub, pub day. And I'm kind of like, okay, what, you know, how am I feeling about all this? And I turned off all my notifications and I was sitting in, a, in the chair in the living room and I was like about to crawl out of my skin because there was nothing to distract me from the truth of how I was feeling. <laughs> And I wasn't like, <laughs> no social media was coming in. Yeah. And I just sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what he was talking about. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. My feelings. Yeah. And, but, but you know what? That, that is, I would argue that if it weren't for those social media accounts, if it wasn't for all those pings and dings, we would find something. Right, whether it's right. TV, whether it's uh, obsessing about the news, whether it's uh, gossip, there's always a potential distraction if that's what you are looking for. So fundamentally, I mean, this is a very important skill, this, uh, this skill of mastering our internal triggers. And it turns out that there are some techniques that, that are not that hard to, to implement in our life that help us reimagine those internal triggers in a way that, that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. Mm-hmm. And that's by dealing with what's in front of you, right? Instead of trying to just suppress it, make it go away. That's right. So, yeah. so it turns out that that uh, by trying to push down these feelings, by uh, uh, resorting to strict abstinence and saying, "Okay, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm not going to feel those things." In many ways, they bounce back with a vengeance. Uh, there's been a lot of research around at this te- these techniques around abstinence. And it turns out that when we tell ourselves a strict no, uh, we tend to ruminate about it. So, for example, if I told you, whatever you do, don't think about a white bear. <laughs> well, of course, you're, you're thinking about nothing but a white bear because I told you not to. <laughs> right. And so the same goes for – it turns out with cigarettes too that one of the reasons that people get addicted to cigarettes is because they are fighting with themselves, telling them to themselves, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Oh, okay, fine. I'll smoke. Right. And that relief of the tension of telling yourself not to do something – the brain interprets that as pleasure, in fact, that the yes. relief of discomfort, uh, right, re- the relief of that tension of telling yourself no, in fact, feels good. So what are you doing? You're actually reinforcing that neural circuitry to get you to do that thing again and again and again and again. And so the, the answer is not to say, don't do it. And this is why I'm so adamantly against these digital detoxes that tell you, you know, don't you know, get off technology for 30 days. That stuff doesn't work for the same reason fad diets don't work. Right. Rather, we have to figure out how we talk to ourselves in a manner that doesn't just tell ourselves don't do it, but rather helps us ride these waves, these emotional waves that, that prompt us with these urges to do things that could potentially take us off track. So riding the wave, how do you like, explain that a little bit? What do you, what do you mean the wave? Sure. So uh, psychologists tell us that emotions – uh, they crest and then they subside, kind of like a wave. And one of the techniques that we can use, this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, tells us that we can surf the urge. We can ride it like a surfer on a surfboard. And the way we do that is through curiosity rather than contempt. So what mm-hmm. most people do, they fall into two buckets. When they are about to get distracted, they are either blamers or shamers. The blamers say, oh, you see, it was my iPhone that did it to me. It's Facebook. It's this. It's that. They blame things outside themselves. The shamers, this is what I used to do. We go inside. We say, oh, you see, there's something wrong with me. I'm lazy. Maybe I'm not cut out for this kind of work. I'm not good enough. We shame ourselves. And of course, ironically, that leads to more of these uncomfortable emotional sensations, which makes us even more likely to seek escape from them. So the right answer is not to be a blamer. It's not to be a shamer. It's to be a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility, saying, this isn't my fault, right? I didn't create Facebook. I didn't create email. I didn't create these potential distractions, but they are my responsibility. And by reclaiming responsibility for these things, we can use these strategies like surfing the urge. So for example, almost every day when I find myself wanting to give into distraction, if you can catch yourself and just ride out that sensation for just 10 minutes. This is called the 10-minute rule. Yeah. So when I want to give into that chocolate cake that I know I shouldn't have or I want to just you know, check email real quick when I'm in the middle of, of, of doing focused work, I'll tell myself, look, I can give into that distraction 
in just 10 minutes. 10 minutes of surfing the urge with curiosity rather than contempt. Contempt would be blaming and shaming. Curiosity is simply sitting with that sensation for 10 minutes, right? Sometimes I'll just take my phone, I'll say, you know, set a timer for 10 minutes. And my job is to just experience that sensation with curiosity and then either get back to the task at hand or just wait till the timer runs out while exploring that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt. And nine times out of 10, by the time that timer rings, I'm already back at the task at hand, right? right? So I'm not using strict abstinence. I'm not saying, no, 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 don't do it. I'm using a technique to help me ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard until it subsides, until it goes away. And that urge most often times does go away. You know, I've noticed that this also works with parenting. When you have a kid that's like, I want something, you know, my kid, like they have a video game and, and my son will be like, can I have more time on it? And I will say, you need to give me 10 minutes. (laughs) just give me 10 minutes and then he'll go away and then I won't see him for like an hour because he found something else to do and I didn't realize I was using it on other people but apparently it it works for you know because it's I'm like imposing a 10 minute break on him to not be distracted (laughs) yeah yeah maybe that does work as well not not a bad idea (laughs) but no it's so it's so true that and, and I tell a lot of people that I work with, especially with food, because I I say we have a a pantry goblin that lives in the pantry. And when you walk by, it grabs you and and sucks you in. And you have to tell the pantry goblin, you need to give me 10 minutes and I'll come back if I want anything from you. You know, but once we ride out that 10 minutes, it's so true. Half the time we're good without without eating whatever we we were going to do, because it's not even about the food. It's not about the task at hand. It's about the emotion. That's exactly right. That's exactly. So I used to be clinically obese, and I remember that most of the time I, I didn't eat because I was hungry. I still. How often do we really eat because we're hungry? No, we eat because we are bored. We eat because we fear being hungry in the future. Right. right? That's why we eat. We don't. Not not all that often do we eat really because we're hungry. And so it's about recognizing those sensations. <clears throat> And using those uncomfortable sensations to prompt us towards traction rather than distraction. Because, look, these, these sensations, you know, part of what I, I really uh, chafes me in, uh, around about the self-help industry these days is that there's, there's a, a bunch of folks that kind of tell us that if we are not happy all the time, if we're not satisfied, if, we, if we're wanting for something, that we're somehow broken, that something's wrong with us and we need to be fixed, and nothing could be further from the truth. Right. That if you think about it, as a species, we evolved to be perpetually perturbed. We are designed, <laughs> right? That, that is, if you think about it, as an evolutionary trait, that benefited us, the fact that we always wanted more. If there was ever a, a tribe of Homo sapiens that was satisfied, that was happy all the time, well, our ancestors probably killed and ate them. Right. Because that would not be evolutionary <laughs> beneficial. So we, not, we should not be surprised. We should not guilt ourselves or shame ourselves that we want more, that we want to, to uh, you know, that we want escape from boredom, from loneliness, from, uh, from uncertainty, from stress. Of course we want to escape from those things. That's perfectly healthy, perfectly normal. And we can't necessarily control how we feel, but what we can control is how we respond to those feelings. Yeah. I'm super curious about what was the primary emotion that triggered overeating for you? Ah, uh, for me, it was a lot of things, <laughs> for, you know, because, um, uh, there, there, you know, what I did was eat my feelings, uh, yeah. very much so. Right. So we've, and it, of course it starts you down the, down this terrible shame spiral where you, yeah. 
you eat because you feel bad and then you feel bad because you eat. Uh, and so for me, many times it was, it was boredom. Uh, then the boredom turned into loneliness and then the loneliness turned into guilt and uh, just a whole terrible shame spiral, to be yeah. honest. You know, <laughs> and, it, that, that yeah. was interesting, though, because when I – you said boredom. I think boredom is part of one of mine. But I when I started to really pay attention, because I'm a binge eater too, and um, I, I had to attach what emotion it was. Like, when am I going to the pantry? What is really happening? And I realized it was uncertainty and mm. anger. So when I was uncertain about something, I could gain certainty by stuffing myself and hating myself. Mm. And then – when it was anger, I realized this was some evolutionary thing where I'm like, I'm mad, fuel up, it's time to fight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was my two things. And once I realized it was anger, that really changed for me. That's so interesting. And yeah. in fact, there's the, there's that section in the book that you, you saw around uh, how to build an indistractable workplace. And I talk about this fascinating research that was done by these two researchers who wanted to figure out what is the what, what type of workplace – is more likely to lead us to depression and anxiety, and it and not 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 just in the you know general sense, but actually the clinical sense. What type of work environments make people more likely to experience clinical depression? And you know, if you if you ask this question to me, the first time I I, I heard this research, I would have said that the type of work environment that would make you depressed is, you know, the kind of of jobs that are sad, right? Maybe if you work as a mortician, or I don't know, you have to put uh, dogs to sleep if you're a veterinarian. Turns out that has no correlation. Hmm. That in fact, the kind of jobs that lead to depression and anxiety disorder are the ones that have a confluence of two factors: high expectations along with low control. So if you have high expectations and high control, you're fine. No problem. You're happy. But if you have high expectations coupled with low control, that's when you're more likely to feel anxiety and depression. And so that's exactly what I think a lot of people experience in today's workforce. And you mentioned this idea of eating in order to regain control and yeah. agency. That is exactly why I used to eat because it was something I had agency over when my world was topsy-turvy. And I think we see the exact same thing happening in the modern workplace, except instead of food, it's emails and meetings. Uh, meetings for the sake of meetings. Yes, because what do I do if I feel like I'm not in control? If I feel like call my, a meeting. Call a meeting. <laughs> Exactly. And so we have more stupid meetings that we don't yeah. need to attend that are called just because someone needs to feel in control. And they send – so what do they do? They call more meetings. They send more emails, more Slack notifications. And so not only does it make their lives more distracting, it makes everyone else's life more distracting as well. Right, right. So when I read your book, I'm out of – I used to be a lawyer. So I used to have lots of meetings for the sake of meetings, but I've been out of that for a couple of years. But my husband is in a job where there's lots of meetings. And I was like, I sent him your book. I sent him your audio book. He has not listen to it. And he comes home and he's like, oh, I've got meetings tonight. And, and I said, I don't want to hear about your meetings until you read this book. <laughs> <laughs> because, it, but he, yeah, I mean, it's that whole, it's a bunch of people trying to establish control over their little part of the world because it's a huge right. company and lots of expectations, but really no one is in control. Yeah, yeah. And and that, that oftentimes does require a cultural shift. And I talk about these two companies uh, that have made that cultural shift. Uh, one of them is the Boston Consulting Group that I worked at. And actually, it was my first job in college that they've actually made this massive cultural shift. And then the other one is Slack, 
funny enough, the, the, the company that everyone says, you know, it's the world's largest group chat app, it was the one technology that everybody mentioned when I did when I was doing interviews over the past five years for my book. That was one of the products that just kept coming up again and again as a product that people think is making their lives terrible because it's so distracting. So actually I went to visit Slack headquarters. And I expected these people to be the most distracted people on earth because if it's the technology that's causing all this distraction, well, nobody uses Slack more than people at Slack, right? But that's not what I found. That in fact at Slack, uh, after you leave the office – and the office is is a ghost town after 6 o'clock. After you leave the office, you are chastised if you use Slack on nights and weekends. That is not what they do there. And so it's a perfect example of how it's not the technology that's the problem. The real problem, the root cause, is a dysfunctional workplace culture. Because at Slack, they have these three criteria of a company that is indistractable, whereby they give employees psychological safety, where people can talk about their problems without fear of getting fired. They give employees a venue to do that. And most importantly, company management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. In fact, when you walk into company headquarters, okay, middle of Silicon Valley, publicly traded company, you know, not the kind of company that you would expect to see written on their walls in neon pink letters. It says, work hard and go home. Like it literally <laughs> says it on their wall nice. uh, because it's part of that company culture, re- re- solidifying this fact that it's not the technology that's doing it to us. It's crappy company culture. Right. And I think it was in your book that I read, um, and I think it might have been one of these companies, that they gave a mandatory night off. Was that another company? Yes, BCG. Yes. Right. Predictable yeah. time off. A mandatory night off. And I, I mentioned that to my husband this weekend because he was sending emails on Sunday afternoon. And I said, hey, why don't you schedule those for Monday? <laughs> He's like, what? And I said, well, since you're in a leadership position, if you send emails on the weekend, that's going to make the people that work for you feel like they have to work on weekends. And you could establish, you know, you're trying to get more of your own time back. And he's like, what are you even talking about? But it was, I told him that example about the company that said, you know, every Wednesday night, no one is expected to respond to emails or or look at their emails. And it gave this like huge relief to the whole organization that no one was going to be on their phones or their emails that night. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so it's when companies can talk about this problem. It turns out that that the real problem is not necessarily, okay, everybody stop checking email or everybody, let's do what the competition is doing, right? Let's copy no email Fridays or no meeting Wednesdays. It turns out that the real source of the problem is that people can't talk about the problem. Mm. It's It's like a family where everybody knows that dad has a drinking problem, but nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. And so when we can't talk about these problems, that is the real problem. That's the skeleton in the closet, that when companies provide employees just the opportunity to talk about this problem without fear of if I raise my hand, they're going to think I'm lazy and fire me. That is when we start solving this problem, is, is when people can, can have psychological safety to air these concerns. Yeah, psychological safety. I'd never even heard that term. Yeah, it's a big one. It came out of uh, Google, actually. Google did these uh, these studies where they wanted to figure out why uh, – oh, sorry. It didn't come out of Google. There was a, a social psychologist who actually coined this term, but uh, Google did these famous experiments about this where they, they wanted to figure out what made for the most productive case team. And they thought, well, we'll just take you know a PhD and a Nobel laureate and a, an amazing engineer. We'll put them together on our team. The smartest people will make the best team, right? That's what everybody tells you. Just if you hire A players, that's how you get the best teams. Right. Turns out that wasn't true at all. 
that it wasn't necessarily about the people. It was about how the people worked together. And it was the teams that provided each other with psychological safety, meaning people could voice concerns without fear of retribution, without fear of getting fired. Those were the highest performing teams because what tends to happen is when people think, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room and everybody's the smartest person in the room, then nobody's listening to each other and nobody cares about what, it, what each other thinks. Whereas when, when a company establishes psychological safety and people can talk about their problems, now they can make things better as opposed yeah. to you know, running really quickly into a brick wall. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about, let's turn the focus back to the individual because I love your take on willpower. Um, when I was a little kid, I got put on a diet at like age 10 with my grandmother. And I remember my grandmother saying, Meredith, there are people that have willpower. You and I do not. And I Uh-oh. remember thinking, <laughs> that is really unfair that I don't have willpower. You know, really unfair. I remember being 10 years old and thinking that really sucks. And then we Uh-oh. would go eat pizza and vow to start again on Monday with Weight Watchers. You know, I mean, it was, I've been thinking about willpower my whole life and I love I love your take on it. I completely agree with it. So let's talk a little bit about willpower. Yeah. All right. So we have a chubby kids club here together. <laughs> That's <laughs> That's what, yes. I mean, it's it's we, our life is very parallel here. I remember. Well, having, and I saw like, you I was, went to Emory, so I'm from Georgia. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. We do Atlanta, and oh, then yeah. I saw you did some work in Boston. I'm in Boston now, so uh, yeah, another uh, small uh, world. <laughs> Go ahead, chubby world. kids club. <laughs> yeah. So you know that same same story. I remember being told, you know, I, if there's one word that that kind of sends shivers down my spine, it's self control. Because I remember being told by my parents and my I had two older brothers, and you know, God, just have some self control. Stop eating so much, right? And so I I, I just hate that word. Yes. <laughs> and the same goes for willpower. And I don't think willpower. Is, is so great as people think. Uh, I think willpower has a lot of flaws because it turns out that, that willpower in the moment is, is not that powerful. That you know, if, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, if the cigarette is lit and you're about to take that puff, if the cell phone is on your nightstand inches away from where you go to sleep and where you wake up every morning, you're going to give in. Right, you're you're going to succumb. They're going to get you uh, sooner or later. And so the idea is to not depend on willpower, to not depend on self-control, but instead to to bank on systems. And so that's really what becoming indistractable is about. It's about these four basic steps, so that when the moment comes when you are likely to get distracted, when you are likely to give into temptation, you don't need any willpower. Right, you have a system in place so that you don't have to expend any of that willpower. It's not that hard to resist. There's also so one of the the three things that I talked about earlier, the in terms of reimagining the trigger, reimagining the task, and reimagining our temperament. Part of what 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 I advise in terms of reimagining our temperament, and this this is is uh, unfortunately related to what your grandmother told you because it 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 shaped your temperament and that you thought you were the kind of person without willpower, which right. is. I'm really sorry that she 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 put that into your head because that that is not uh, helpful, right? That is that is very self defeating, and we see that with people uh, in, in all kinds of aspects of life. We know that the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic will recover after a treatment program is not their level of physical dependency. Okay, it is not what the alcohol is doing to their body; it's the belief in their brain. The number one determinant of whether someone will recover after treatment is whether they believe they are powerless to resist or not. Yep. And so this is what we see today with this conversation that technology is addicting us, that it's hijacking our brains, that it's you know nothing we can do about it because of these crazy algorithms and Facebook this and, and, and iPhone that. 
you know, no doubt these tools are designed to be engaging. That That's without question. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. But in fact, if we think we are powerless, if we think we are addicted, if we think there's nothing we can do about it, well, then we don't do anything about it. And so I think that whole narrative that I think we see, you know, is so popular in the media these days that it's addicting everyone is really not helpful. Uh, it's, it's, it's really counterintuitive. It, in fact, it makes it true <laughs> that we are less right. likely to do something about it. Right, right. So I'm four years, almost four years sober and I quit drinking and I never, you know, I, I support anyone who gets sober, however they do it. And so I support AA, I support whatever method, um, however you get sober, get sober if you need to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's my disclaimer, but I always had a hard time with, with the idea that I'm powerless over alcohol. Mm. I didn't like that because it made me seem like well, if I'm powerless over the, this, then I'm never going to be able to not drink. And so my approach to being sober has always been, um, this does not control me. I don't, and I don't make eye contact with it. I don't look at it. I don't romanticize it because I just, it's not something that I need willpower to not do. Mm. I just don't do it. You know, yeah. I just have yeah. removed the distractions um, from alcohol. And honestly, when I'm at a table with a bunch of people drinking, I just don't look at it. I don't look while the waiter pours it. I don't look at it longingly and think, mm -hmm. oh, I wish I could have that. And, and that has how, that's how I've been indistractable against drinking is I just put up walls and, and I said, I have power over this. And I think yeah. the choice of words that we say in our head, like the people that easily go back to drinking are the ones that are saying words like, oh, I wish I could. Oh, how I miss that. Mm. Oh, um, you know, they're thinking about the wrong things. So I, I like your approach to self-talk and how it, it ties into what we want. So right. the words we say, I mean, in our heads, it's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah. part of that, you know, part of the research that I, I uh, talk about with willpower has to do with this notion that a lot of people have around what's called ego depletion, that somehow if we are uh, if we use up all our willpower, if we are spent in some way, then we deserve a treat. We deserve, you know, we, we've run out. We can't make yes. any more good decisions. And th this actually had some scientific credibility for a while. Uh, this there were some studies around this that showed that, you know, if you gave people a hard task and then you asked them whether they wanted a, a, a brownie or a granola bar, they're most likely to eat the granola, uh, the, the brownie because they were spent. They couldn't make any more good decisions. And so for a while, I mean, this is kind of, you know, pop psychology that many people believe this, that if they have made a lot, you know, if they've had a tough day at work, well, then how could you blame them for having a Ben and Jerry's and, you know, watching Netflix on TV because they're spent. Yeah. Uh, and I used to believe that as well. And it turns out that, that the research that showed this was the case uh, was, was debunked. It turns out that they could not replicate these studies except for with a certain group of people, that there was a certain group of people who did in fact exhibit ego depletion. And those people were the ones who believed in ego depletion. Right. So if you believed that you were spent, that you had no more willpower left and that you deserved to give in to the temptation, guess what? That's what you did. <laughs> right. And so those are the only – this work was done by Carol Dweck at, at Stanford. Uh, and you might, you might remember her from her book uh, Mindset, which is fantastic. Yes. And, and so I think it's a really great example of how the way we view ourselves and view our temperament is, is so important, that we, we think we have these defining traits about ourselves. But those words that we call ourselves really, really matter. Uh, and so there's, there's also what we call a, an identity pact where by calling ourselves a certain moniker – 
by having an identity that we label ourselves, whether it's a you know someone that serves us or one that hurts us, it has some profound consequences. Uh, for example, you know this comes from the psychology of religion, that a devout Muslim does not debate whether they should have that beer because a devout Muslim does not drink alcohol. It's no longer in the question. Uh, a vegetarian doesn't say, ooh, I wonder if I should have that BLT today. No, a devout vegetarian does not eat meat. Someone who is strict about that, that is who they are. And so they don't have to spend any time thinking about it. It's just out of their domain of possibility. And so this is a big part of why uh, I called my book Indistractable because this is the new moniker. This is the new title that we need to start calling ourselves proudly so that we can help ourselves stay on track, not just for other people, right? So there's there's uh, this psychology literature that, that shows how in, in religion, you know, every major religion has people who proselytize the faith, people who, who tell others about it. And of course, that does increase the, the number of, of devotees, but it also reinforces the identity of the person doing the preaching. So one of the, the most powerful aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous is the sponsor program, right? The fact that I am responsible for other people makes me more likely to stay on track. Yes. And so when we have a moniker, when we have an identity, when we have something we call ourselves, it helps us stay on track. It helps us do what we really want to do. And so that's one of the techniques that we can use to fight distraction in our lives as well. Yes, I like that. Identity packs. Uh, you had a lot in the book about that. And it is so true. Like if you just identify with something positive, uh, but this can go the other way too. Like you can really go off the deep end with crazy town. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Pick, it, pick it, the right group. <laughs> yes. Pick, hopefully pick the right group. And the idea is that, you know, it's about start the, the whole place where I start this whole book is about starting with your values. Uh, and I don't tell people what their values should be. No, nobody can tell you what your values should be. But my, my, my goal here is no matter what your values are, turn those values into time, right? That as much as we talk a good game, you know, I used to say, oh, yeah, if you ask me, you know, what's important to me? What, I, what do I value in life? Certainly it's my health, right? What's more important than your health? But did I have any time on my calendar to take care of my health? Right. No, I just expected, you know, oh, yeah, I'll go out to the gym someday <laughs> or, you know, my, my relationships, my family, my friends. That's really important to me. But did I have any time on my schedule to spend time with those people? No, they just fell into the cracks. Whenever I would have time away from work, that's when I would, you know, find time for people I love. But it wasn't in my calendar. And so the idea here is to turn your values into time, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whatever it is that is important to you, that time needs to be on your calendar so that for the first time you'll be able to know the difference between what is traction and what is distraction for every minute of your day. Yes, I love it. I love it. So one more question for you. Uh, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, meaning we have the same 24 hours in our day, everyone, but it's what we do in those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health and pursuit of happiness and success. So what is something that you have found that you do on a daily basis that allows you to make the most of your 24 hours, to gain traction? Um, what, what is a habit you, you do? Yeah, so this practice of time boxing is is really important to me. Uh, and the idea here, you know, that it ruffles some feathers because people say, "Oh, I don't want to be so rigid and planning my day," and you know that doesn't sound like a, like like much fun. But here's the thing. It's incredibly easy to do. It takes you maybe 30 minutes to do the first time. And the idea behind time boxing is that you are setting your ideal schedule for the week to come. And you can do this if your schedule changes every day. You can do it every day. If your schedule is pretty well certain for the next week ahead, you, can, you know I, that's what most people do is about a week's time uh, is the increment. And the reason this is so important is because 
you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. That as much as we run around and say, oh, I got distracted from this, I got distracted from that, if I can't see what's on your calendar that you plan to do with your time, then everything is a distraction. Yes. And for all the money we spend on keeping our stuff safe, right? We have security systems on our homes and we have alarms on our cars and we have our money in banks and safes all to keep our stuff safe. But when it comes to our time, speaking about the same 24 hours, how much time do we spend making sure that we guard our time or do we just let anybody come in and take as much as they want? Right. And so if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. And so that simple technique, and I'll give you a link for the show notes that makes this really easy. I built a very, very simple tool. You don't even have to log in. It's totally free. The idea is to make this weekly template. And this tactic, not only will it change your work life, it saved my marriage. I mean that simple wow. process of going through, my wife and I have this time box calendar that we both that we each keep. And looking that over for the week ahead has just transformed our relationship. It's it's had a massive, massive in- impact. That's really awesome. You know what I did after I read your book? I, most mornings I would do my cardio between my two kids. One gets on the bus and then I have an hour and the next one gets on the bus. And I tried to do my cardio in between the two kids getting on the bus and I was doing it. It, it was just, I was on autopilot, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to put it on the calendar. And so I made it a recurring calendar event and it just, now it is so just what I do. Because it's on my calendar, it pops up. One kid gets on the bus. There's my notification. Go get on the stair stepper, <laughs> you yeah. know. And and so I I use time boxing after reading your book for everything. Every Love single it. thing that's of value to me goes on the calendar, and yeah. it's super helpful. And you can plan. It's not like you have to be productive all the time. You can plan what I call plan spontaneity. So if I'm gonna have a, a, an afternoon with my daughter and my and my wife, that's great. I've got four hours or whatever it is. Plan just for them, and that's time on my calendar for them. So the important thing here is we might not know what we're going to do, right? Maybe we'll go to the museum. Maybe we'll take a walk. I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe we'll play a board game. That's not the important part. That part can stay spontaneous. But what I know I won't be doing is I won't be taking a phone call. I won't be on email. I won't be doing work. I have that time set aside for them. And so that could be anything in your life that's according to your values, whether it's time to pray, time to meditate, time to paint, whatever it is that you want to do with your time. In this day and age, it's really imperative to to make that time on your schedule to make sure that you can uh, live out your values. Yes, absolutely. Well, Nir, thank you so much for this book. I think it is honestly the most important book I've read this year. Wow, thank um, you. That's, that means a lot to me. Because it ties it all together. I mean, you're right. There's books out there that tell you to do this. There's there's psychology books that tell you personally to do this. But this book literally ties it all together. And it's so easy to understand. And I loved it. So thank you for this. And um, everyone needs to buy this book. Indistractable. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. And by the way, quick note, if you go to indistractable.com, uh, there's a free uh, uh, video course as well as a free workbook, an 80-page workbook that we couldn't nice. fit into the manuscript. So it's all there for you. It helps you guide you through the, through, through the contents of the book as well. And that's all at indistractable.com. Very nice. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.